Romans chapter 13. Picking up where Rob left off last week, and really we're in this section that Matt started a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul is getting at this idea that we are somehow not to conform to the world around us, but to be transformed. And by being transformed, we can discern what God is on about and join him in that work. We'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind discerning and living into God's good purposes here in our relationships with others and the church to a watching world around us and even as Rob shared with us last week to our governing authorities and what that looks like. Paul exhorts us to take on this totally new way of thinking and living in light of the climax of history that has come in the work of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that work, We lived with this transformed way of thinking about the world we live in. We live in this countercultural community attempting to deliver on this alternative promise that Jesus has given. We use our giftedness to bless and serve one another. And we are thoughtful and intentional about how we relate to authorities, government, and the culture around us. And in this continuing thought, today, Paul's words to us speak to this overarching foundation for how we do all of that living, and that's in light of love, and how love shapes how we see the times that we live in and how we deal with the times that we live in. Paul's purpose in this last paragraph of Romans chapter 13 seems to lay a certain kind of foundation for our conduct. And it is one that is built on thinking about the end of all things. Thinking about what happens at the end of all things and how we live in light of that. And that's where we find ourselves in the text today. Romans chapter 13 verse 11. And Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Jesus, as we pause and we spend this time with you and your word and with each other, we ask you to speak. Open our ears to the things you are saying. Open our eyes to the things that you are showing to us. And even with our hands, would they be open to the things you want to give us today as we encounter you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time you thought about the end of all things? Welcome to church, by the way. (laughs) When was the last time you thought about it? Maybe for your own life. I was at a funeral yesterday, and that sent my mind thinking in a million directions. But also like the end of everything. There is a massive industry trying to entertainment eyes the potential end of everything. 
grossing almost $6 billion, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has perfected this. The largest movie franchise in history, all about what happens at the end of everything, culminating in Thanos and the snap and wiping out of half of all of existence. Right, most watched movie of all time. And for the entertainment factor, there's nothing that even comes close to that plot line. It's fascinating, it's interesting, it's terrifying. It calls us to maybe something greater, and the stakes just could not be higher. There's an old movie that Matt and I really love, and I'm convinced he references it at least once a month here. Uh, it's this movie called Red Dawn. Have you heard of it? Yeah, there you go. You have heard of it. In an alternate 1980s, the United States stands alone as communism seems to grow stronger. When the Soviet soldiers invade a small Colorado town, brothers Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen escape with their friends into the forest and with their father and a prisoner of the invading army, the children decide to fight against the Soviets. As their country comes under increasing attack, the group teams up with Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Tanner to take back their town. I mean, who wouldn't want to watch that? That's amazing. That's just good cinema right there. But it's all about what happens when the end is near and you are called upon to act. What do you do? And that's what Paul is getting at here. Less about the Soviets. More about the end of all things and and what you do in light of that. Living with the end in mind. And the end in the Bible is kind of a peculiar thing. The end, as the Bible speaks about the end, it's not necessarily going to heaven when I die. It's definitely not the annihilation of everything. It's not your body just into worm food. It's something different. It's something peculiar and something kind of specific. When the Bible speaks of the end, it speaks of this day of the Lord. When God finally makes everything right that has been made wrong by sin. When Jesus returns to restore and redeem humanity and creation. And when we join him in our resurrected bodies at that moment of glorification. And Paul makes this case over and over again in a bunch of his letters that what we believe about what's coming actually profoundly shapes how we live here and now. And by what we believe, I'm not talking about pre-mill, post-mill, pre-trib, post-trib. I'm not talking about dates. I'm not talking about Israel. It's not really that. When Paul talks about what we believe, he's saying, do you believe that Jesus is actually returning in his resurrected body, coming to make all of creation right again? And do you believe that you will join him in your resurrected body, not just on clouds with harps, but in the new creation that God is going to form? And do you believe that somehow that life to come and that life here now are strangely and oddly linked? That what we do here and now actually has eternal ramifications and implications. There's a New Testament scholar, Douglas Moo, and he says this about this passage, quote, We need to recognize both what God is doing and what he plans to do, and then live accordingly. This is the case Paul is making right here in this text. Not only understanding this big, beautiful gospel that he's been laying out so far in the book of Romans, but also where we sit in this historical, theological scheme of things. And all of that should inform our thinking, our actions, our behavior, and our practices. And what he's trying to get at here is that your living here and now 
actually matters because it reveals what you believe about what's to come. And so he starts in verse 11, trying to get us to understand the times that we live in. In verse 11, he says this, besides this, and by the way, this besides is like a link to Romans 13, 8, where he talks about this command to love. And so it's like another explanation of how we are to live these lives of love. And he says, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. And in these couple of verses, there are four references to time. Paul's getting at this from all different angles here, and there's four references to time. And firstly, he starts out saying, you know the time. You know the times. And this is about understanding our place in the story. And it's really starting to unpack this already net yet, not yet idea. Like we live in a certain particular place in history, and that means something. From a theological perspective, we live in the in-between, you and I. In between what Jesus did on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and when he returns. This is a different time period than other time periods that have come before. We live in between his first coming and his second. In between the inauguration of the kingdom of God and its consummation. In between God's presence here on earth with us and when he fully returns to redeem and restore everything. Few of the letters in the New Testament get at this. In Hebrews 2, we see glimpses of this. And John in 1 John 3 gives us such a beautiful picture of this. When he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In light of this, the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon says, It's a great mistake. When a man's, in a man's life when he does not know the times in which he lives and how to act in them. And when he does not know the time as the time of day of his own life, so as to apply his heart into wisdom. We live in a different time than what we read about in the Old Testament. We live in a different time than even what we read about in the New Testament pre-resurrection. We live in a unique time period where God is calling us to something incredible, filled with his spirit, partnering with him in his work. That's just the first look at time, that you know the times. You know where you are rooted in this historical, theological perspective. But a second reference is saying the hour has come. There's a quickening that is happening. The time for action is now. And this is Paul's call to get off the sidelines and to get into the game. If you think about the Christian life like a a sports game, like I'm I'm coaching my son's soccer game this fall. By the way, I know nothing about soccer. And they promised me that that's okay, but I'll be there anyway. But imagine, like, we think about the Christian life like a soccer game. Often, we have all these imaginations that we're going to be a forward. That's a thing, right? A midfielder. A goalie, we have all these, we're going to be this, we're going to be that. But in reality, we find ourselves like parents shouting at the coach on the sidelines. And this is Paul's invitation to get off the sidelines into the game. He unpacks this in 1 Corinthians 4. He's saying, we are being slaughtered, and you're out there judging and laughing at us. Join us. Many of us see ourselves wanting to be players, but are actually spectators 
And the call of Scripture is, the time is now. Don't waste any more time spectating on this Christian thing. Join in the game. His third reference to time is that salvation is nearer to us now, which is a curious phrase. If we think about salvation as this one-time personal relationship with Jesus kind of idea, But in the Bible, the salvation thing is like this multifaceted story. It's not just this one-time event that happens. It's actually like a story that is being developed. It's a comprehensive term where we're looking to our past justification, our present sanctification, and our future glorification, all kind of wrapped up in this one idea. And every day that passes, says Paul, is another day closer to that final consummation of the work of God that he has begun in you and in all of us. And it's supposed to build this kind of anticipation. We see this anticipation in the prophet Isaiah where he says, Keep justice, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. We see the same kind of anticipation in the life of Jesus. The book of Luke 21. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When I think about this, I always think about um, our, our kiddos and their birthdays. They love birthdays. I don't know. We accidentally made birthdays a really big deal in our house and we're trapped for life. And... <laughs> But one of, my, one of my favorite things about our kids' birthday is they're always, like, planning for their next birthday, like, at their birthday. Like, okay, so we got, we're going to, you know, Sky Zone this time, but next time I want to go to golf and stuff. And the day after, they're continuing this plan. It's not healthy. We got to do something about it. But they're continuing this plan of what to do for the next birthday. But one of the things, this has been a fun parenting hack if you want to annoy your spouse just a little bit. Sherry hates this. But as soon as they turn, Truman just had a birthday in April, and he just turned seven. And so what I get him to do is right after the day of his birthday, the very next day, when someone asks how old he is, I get him to say, I'm almost eight. It drives Sherry crazy. Like, no, you literally just turned seven. He says, I'm almost eight. I'm almost eight. And he's anticipating what's going to come next. But it's kind of like that, what Paul's getting at. Like, we should live with this kind of anticipation. Like, not only is the time now to get in the game, but salvation's closer today than it was yesterday. Tomorrow, even closer than today. We should be living these lives with this hopeful anticipation of what is to come and live accordingly. And his fourth reference is the night is gone and the day is at hand. And this is really where he develops that already, not yet. Like we live in the in-between. We live in this in-between of the what we believe about what's coming will shape how we live right now. We occupy this unique time in history. And where Paul's already talked about understanding the times, like where we are right now, now he's trying to look, get us to look into the future. What is coming What's, what's coming on this side of the resurrection? This is about looking forward. And the writer C.S. Lewis talks about Christians who look forward. And he says if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. 
It's a profound statement about how often we get wrapped up in what Jesus calls the cares of the world, and we're not looking ahead. And it doesn't doesn't lift our feet off the ground. It doesn't make us disconnected from reality. But Paul makes the argument that it actually informs how we live. It informs how we stay grounded in our true reality. And so each one of these references, Paul's building a case for a certain life lived within a certain time frame. If you knew something big was coming tomorrow, like a wedding, an anniversary, a party, a promotion, a birth, chances are you'd live differently today, right? Like maybe you have a vacation coming up. Sherry and I just did this recently. We took a vacation for our 10-year anniversary, and in the month leading up, we tried to eat really healthy. I mean, salads and everything. It had no effect. I don't really understand diet at all. But we tried to live differently knowing that this moment was coming. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe like a wedding. Like you know this moment is coming, so you want to live differently in the lead up. Maybe you're preparing for a child, so you're nesting and getting the baby room ready, and you're like, this day is coming. I want to be ready for it. Paul wants that festering in our minds. The day when Jesus is coming back is coming. Which day? It doesn't really matter. Like you're not in the loop on those kind of details, the need-to-know thing, and you don't need to know, but he's coming back. Live like he is coming back very quickly. These are the kind of lives we're to be living. And this is really what sets off the back half of these couple of verses. This is what informs what Paul's getting at next here. And we have this so right in the middle of verse 12 that gives us this kind of transition moment, marking his transition from kind of understanding where we're at, understanding the context for our life, and then how we live in light of that. So in the second half of verse 12, we pick up, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And what he gives us here is three contrasting deals here, three contrasting appeals to us. Like, please live this way, not that way. This way, not that way. This way, not that way. And the first is in our context. It's like your context has changed. You're no longer children of darkness, but you are children of light. The picture is that because of the hour and because of our shifted and changed identity, we not only wake up and get up, but we get dressed as well. Like you don't wake up and get dressed and walk out of your house naked or in your PJs. That would be strange. But he says, just like you wake up and get dressed and get ready for the day, the time is now to live like that. We must take off our PJs, our night clothes, the deeds of darkness, and put on instead a suitable daytime equipment set, the armor of light. Frank Thielman, a New Testament commentator here, says, just as no Roman with any sense would party at mid-morning, When survival often depended on mental focus and hard labor, so believers should live all day, every day, engaged in the important morning work of loving others. She talks about our context. We don't dress like we used to. We're not children of darkness like we were. We're children of light. And a second 
contrast here is our practices. Our practices look very different because our identity has changed. We turn from the kind of things people do under the cover of darkness. And this takes maybe some imagination, maybe some reflection. We're to imagine that the day has dawned and Jesus is right before us. How would you live? How would you live if he like walked in that door and all his resurrection glory? I'm here, guys. How would you live? What would that be like? How would I behave? What is eternally important? What will last forever? And something about this kind of Christian ethic that focuses on the world to come is oddly missional. It's oddly appealing to people who live as if this world is all there is. There's a hopeful factor that is there that is severely lacking outside the way of Jesus. There's a second century writer who was looking to defend Christians because of their crazy, disruptive, countercultural behavior. And he said, they share their meals, not their wives. It's a fascinating look. I want to read, it's a little bit of a lengthy read, but I think it is worth it to give a picture of what it looks like to live with the end in mind. This is from the letter to Diagnosis. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general. They follow the customs of whatever city they have been, happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them, condemned because they are not understood. They are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, even if they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. I mean... Like, what if the people of Thousand Oaks said that about us? What if? I mean, pick any phrase in there. 
they live in this country as though they are passing by. They obey fully, they're good citizens, but their allegiance is elsewhere. When they're insulted, they rejoice. What if? What if our behavior actually matched what we believe about what's to come? Profound opportunity. And finally, he talks about our preoccupation. He says, make no provision for the flesh, but put on Christ. And it's here where we get like the crux of what Paul has been getting at so far. When he says make provision, think of like something that's premeditated. Having make preparations for something, like a, like a feast. You're hosting Thanksgiving dinner at your house. You have to make provisions for that dinner. And Paul speaks to our temptation into sin similarly. He says, don't plan to sin. Don't, don't set up all these what-if scenarios that give you a permission structure to do what you want. Instead of making provisions for the flesh, actively do the work of putting on Christ. Now, here's what is beautiful and brilliant about what Paul gets at right here. He doesn't just tell us what to avoid making provisions for the flesh. He tells us how to do it. Is he putting on Christ is not just the opposite of making provisions for the flesh. It is the way we overcome the things of the flesh. It is how we overcome our internal desire to seek pleasure, to just get what we want when we want right away. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is not just an alternative. It's the way to keep us from ourselves, from making provisions for the flesh. Now, Paul, if you've read any of his other letters, he really, really likes this put-on language. We see it in a few of his other letters. In Galatians, he says, As many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. To the Colossians, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And to the Ephesians, he says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. What Paul's doing is he's teaching us how to become like Jesus by just putting on his character, his traits as clothing until they fit better. It may, it may feel like an oversized t-shirt that you're putting on, but eventually you grow into it the more you put it on. He's saying the visible parts of your life should look like Christ if the invisible parts are rooted in Christ. Now, here's the thing, though. This is not an automatic thing. It's not easy, and often it's not natural. Hence the instruction to put on. Putting on clothes in the morning does not happen automatically, unless you're, like, live in the Jetsons or something. Like, it, it does not happen automatically. You have to do it. We have to do a thing on purpose. He, it takes intentionality and participation, is what Paul is getting at here. Just like you choose clothes in the morning, you choose, it's intentionality, to wear a certain thing, and then you wear it. That's participation. It takes both of those things to put on Christ. And what you wear affects how you live. Like, just think, if you're... Um, like, do you go to prom? Like, if you think what you wear to prom matters, what you wear to a wedding matters, like, if you just wear a t-shirt and shorts to your prom, you're going to look very out of place, right? But also, if you're just, like, showing up 
to Starbucks in a tuxedo, you're going to look very odd as well. Like what you wear shapes a bit of how you live, and not only just it'll, it'll cause you to stick out or blend in, but it'll shape your actions. True or false, you are less prone to run a marathon in a tuxedo than in running clothes. <laughs> what you wear shapes how you live. This was one of the pieces of advice someone gave me when I started going back to a gym and working. You can't tell, but it, it's happening, trust me. When I started going back to the gym, a, a friend of mine said, okay, what you got to do is you got to lay out your clothes in the morning. And like, you got to pre-prepare because if you don't, you're weak at the beginning. You have no willpower. He's a friend. He was telling me I was weak and had no willpower. He said, you're weak. You have no willpower. But what you need to do is lay out your clothes so you have a decision made already. And then once you put on the clothes, say to yourself, I'm the kind of person that's healthy. I'm, I'm not kidding. He told me to do this. He said, say to yourself, I'm the kind of person that is healthy. And it will change how you live. It'll change what you do at the gym. It'll change the kind of food you eat. If you just say, I'm a healthy person. I'm wearing healthy person clothes right now. This is what I do. <laughs> it will change how you live. And similarly, Paul wants us to remember who we're wearing. If you're baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Who are you wearing? Think about the characteristics of Christ that you can and should put on every day to better present Jesus to this world. And putting on the character of Christ is a result of this union with Christ that we have been given as a gift. And it's not just us in Christ. And if you'll notice, the Bible rarely uses the word Christian. It uses a few other words like disciple really frequently to talk about those who follow Jesus. It also talks about those who are in Christ to talk about those who follow Jesus. This metaphor of if anyone is in Christ We've seen some of those key passages already, a few more. In Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Romans, we were buried with him. Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ. Ephesians, you've raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And Romans 6, we have been united with him in a death like his. We are with him. So as we are putting on Christ, we are not putting on something that is foreign, we are living into who we really are. And according to Paul, the nature of our salvation has united us with Christ, and the actions that Jesus performed have been applied and credited to you and to me. The Bible uses this phrase, in Christ, to describe this unbelievable phenomenon that believers in Jesus are credited with his righteousness. We're in Christ, hidden in him, having his righteousness applied to us, his actions applied to us. Everything in our lives is now in Christ. But there's a flip side to that. It's not just us in Christ. We are hidden with him, but it's Christ in us. He's empowering us. The other side of this is Christ in us. Colossians 1 to them, God chose them to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is in us. By his spirit, by his very presence, Jesus is with us. He helps us. He guides us. He empowers us. He speaks to us, speaks through us, refines our character, and strengthens his church through us. This is all summed up in John 15 when Jesus says, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. 
And this is our preoccupation, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And somehow that helps us put on Christ to live differently. Paul wants us to understand our place in history, where we find ourselves, on this end of the cross and resurrection, eagerly awaiting what's to come. But we don't sit and wait. We actively join him in this project of bringing the kingdom to earth. We recognize what God is up to, and we live accordingly. And so before we like end and head into a time of response, I don't want to move too quickly past this idea of putting on Christ and assume everyone in the room, we all know what that actually means and how we do it. Because that sounds really nice and churchy. What did Bert talk about today? Oh, we're going to put on Christ. How do you do that? I don't know. But we talked about it today. I think there's a moment for us to engage in something really practical, to engage in practices that will help us live what Paul is calling us to live, ways that we can respond because of the text today. So I want to use Colossians 3. I I grabbed a piece of it a little bit earlier, but Colossians 3 gives us a really fascinating and simple framework for what it means to put on Christ. Colossians 3, 15, 16, and 17. It sounds like a summary. It sounds like Paul's just trying to put a nice bow on what he said already about the new self and the old self and all of that. But he says this in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I see three things here in this text that can help us today put on Christ. Number one, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let it take charge. Now, the peace of Christ is like this non-anxious, confident peace that comes from knowing our identity. And eternal security is settled in the finished work of Jesus. Let that framework rule your heart, your actions, your emotions. And so when life throws things at you, what are you being ruled by? Your desire to please other people, your desire for security or comfort or self-preservation? Or are you ruled by this non-anxious, confident peace that my identity is settled, my eternal security is settled? Second, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, we can go narrow focus. I'm going to go wide focus. The word of Christ, scripture, teaching, prayer, singing, worship, community, gratitude, all these ancient practices of the Christian faith, let it dwell in you richly. All these different practices Christians have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years are just ways of putting Christ in us because we're so thick-headed and it takes work and it's hard because we like what we like, and we want what we want. But we do these regular, routine things of like morning time in Scripture and silence and prayer to let our day be guided by His voice and not our own. We gather with the church in community to remind ourselves we are not living this life by ourselves, nor can we. These practices of generosity, of service, all of these things redirect our inward carnal desires 
or making provisions for the flesh and help us to put on the things of Christ. Gratitude seems particularly important. Paul says that in each one of these verses, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. That's how we put on Christ. And finally, this is the beautiful Paul catch-all I love. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do in the name of Jesus. All our words, all our actions filtered through the lens of Jesus and his kingdom. Every activity done in obedience to the Lord Jesus to be accompanied by giving thanks to the Father through him. You and I have purpose here as we await the things that are to come. And it's to carry Jesus' presence into this world, to partner with him in the things that he is already doing. We do that by taking off these sinful patterns, the darkness, the old behaviors, making provision for the flesh, and by putting on the very character and nature of Jesus Christ, this armor of light. So friends, because of the love of the Father and the work of the Son and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can actually do this. We can walk fully clothed in Christ in this world in a way that anticipates the next. Would you pray with me? Father, as we sit in this, this command, this exhortation, this encouragement, this, this pleading from Paul to not be so wooed by this world, but to be totally enraptured by the next, I pray, Holy Spirit, this would fundamentally transform us. This would take us from being the kind of people who are concerned for our well-being, clothing, food. And Jesus reminds us everyone wants those things, but your Father in heaven knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and the rest of this stuff will be added. I pray we are a kind of seek first church, that the people in this city, the people in our lives, would look at us with a kind of interested curiosity. Go, why would you live like that? Jesus, we know we can only put on you because of the work you've gone before and done and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit here and now. And so even as we take moments to respond to this great call, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts from the inside out, making us into the kind of people for whom this is possible. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.